More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Well, hi everyone, Julie here. I am very delighted today to be joined by a very interesting, gracious, and lovely person, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. And I'll just introduce him briefly, and then we're gonna get into what I think is gonna be a very interesting conversation. So Dr. Bhattacharya has an MD and PhD in economics. He's a professor of health policy at Stanford University and directs Stanford's Center for Demography and the Economics of Health and Aging. His research focuses on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations, with a particular emphasis on the role of government programs, biomedical innovation, and economics. He has published 135 articles in top peer-reviewed journals in medicine, economics, health policy, epidemiology, law, and public health, just to name a few. Dr. Bhattacharya's recent research focuses on the epidemiology of COVID-19, as well as the evaluation of policy responses to the epidemic. He's been a vocal opponent of lockdown and mask mandates. And together with Martin Koldorf and Sinetra Gupta, he co-authored the 2020 Great Barrington Declaration, which advocates for letting the virus spread in lower risk groups with the aim of reaching herd immunity with focused protection of the most vulnerable. So Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you so very much for joining us today from California, I believe. Yeah, from California. It's so wonderful that we're able to chat across the miles. That has been one of the great benefits, I guess, if there have been any in the last couple of years. We got to make, make some nice friends, new friends. That's right. Uh, Phoenix from the ashes, they say, I think. So I do want to chat with you about COVID, but also I want to get to a place where we can have a deep conversation about how we got to the point where the COVID response was possible. That's what I'm mainly interested in today. And But I wanna start by asking you, what do you think the world would look like now if our public health officials had taken the advice of the Great Barrington Declaration? And how do we know? Well, you know, it's it's uh, always difficult to, to do play the hindsight game, um, but the Great Barrington Declaration is, uh, it, it, although it was seemed shocking at the time to many, or at least to some people, um, it was actually the old fashioned plan for managing respiratory pandemics. It's the same plan that worked in a century of respiratory pandemics. Um, and the idea isn't so much to like uh, let the virus rip, the, the idea is that we know from the, the the data that there's this like huge risk stratification. Older people in particular are vulnerable. 80% of the deaths have been people over 65, something on that order, um, 40% in nursing homes. Uh, so morally and sort of just from a mathematical point of view, you move heaven and earth to protect the people that are highest risk. And here you have a disease which I mean, it, normally in many, many diseases, you don't have this kind of risk stratification. You, you don't have this opportunity to uh, focus your resources on where it would do the most good. Um, and for the rest of the population, it's not so much a question of letting it rip. It's a question of, it's, it's you know, the lockdowns have been so harmful to the lives of so many people. Uh, and it's usually the vulnerable, the poor, the working class that have been harmed the most children um, with closed schools in places like Uganda closed for two years with millions of kids never coming back to school. Uh, in the United States, poor, poor kids with a tremendous learning loss with no way to replace it really. Um, you, uh, and with, with, with literature suggesting that uh, this will have consequences throughout their lives. So they'll live shorter, poorer, less healthy lives. Um, the, the lockdowns then are harming these folks, children, working class, poor, vulnerable, much more than uh, the virus itself could. 
so the idea is just let people live the normal life focus protection on the on the on the uh, on the uh, on the most vulnerable uh for against the virus and that would have a, a much better i suspect I, I i mean i think for for one thing um you wouldn't have the lockdown harms that's for certain i mean it would it would be you have much many many fewer lockdown harms uh, you know we have estimates something like tens of millions of people around the world uh, on the brink of starvation as a consequence of these lockdowns and the economic dislocation from them. Uh, the, in March of 2021, uh, the UN put out an estimate that 230,000 children had died already from starvation, uh, additional children died from starvation in South Asia as a consequence of lockdowns. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's and you're, you're seeing all of these sort of collateral harms, which would have certainly been avoided if we followed the Great Prevention Declaration. As far as COVID itself, uh, I mean, I think that you pro the lockdowns actually, I think, extended out the, the, the time of the epidemic. The, the epidemic probably would have been over earlier um, and provided an opportunity for the virus to mutate in ways that uh, that evaded immune immune, immune protection against, but, but provided both by prior infection and also by the vaccines. Um, I think uh, it's it's unclear exactly uh, the, whether it would be large or small, or how, or how many lives would have been uh, say, uh, uh, you know, lost from COVID had we had we followed the Great Brain Declaration. But there's literature uh, suggesting that it, we basically saved no lives with the lockdowns, like almost none, um, as a concept because uh, just in COVID itself. Because you know, honestly, who can lock down? It's it's only a really relatively small fraction of the population can lock down. This is a, a it's a strategy aimed at protecting the the, the laptop class, the relatively well-off people can who can whereas the rest of the rest of society really can't. Um, so I, I, it was never, it was a poorly conceived idea uh, it put together in the minds of people who just don't really understand how societies really, really work. Lockdowns fail because of how deeply unequal societies actually are. Um, and so, so I guess in answer to your question, I'd say, I don't think we would have saved very many lives in terms of COVID, and we would have avoided the harm, that, including devastating harm to the lives of so many um, from the lockdowns. It's very interesting to me that you know, even for those who have maintained the so-called narrative all along, that there is so much emerging evidence to support the claims you're making, that lockdowns are harmful, that masking is potentially harmful, the physical, the, the, the mental uh, health effects, and then you know, questions at the very least about, about the safety and efficacy of the, of the vaccines. And so you would think that public health officials, that scientists would have a, a position of, of equipoise, right now and thinking, well, this is this is a very serious issue. We need to be very cautious. Let's also be cautious about our level of certainty. And yet our public health officials have done nothing but uh, maintain a facade of absolute certainty of perfect knowledge. And we have become a society that defers to them. We've become the society of, of credentialists and, and we, we sort of honor expertiseism. And, you know, we have these hashtags like trust the science, trust the scientists, follow or, or just science, right? As though that's supposed to stand in for an argument of some kind. But it's been interesting to me because to be a, there's a question about what it is to be an expert in this COVID era, and it apparently is not a matter of one's background, experience, or credentials. Because I mean, you know, you are a professor at Stanford. Uh, Dr. Kuldorf is from Harvard, I believe. Dr. Gupta from Oxford. Um, it's difficult to be better credentialed than the three of you are, and yet 
your view about how the pandemic should have been hand handled and how things could be handled going forward is dismissed. So what do you think, how did we get to our particular view of experts now? And what does it take to be an expert? And what harm is that doing, do you think? Yeah, I think uh, I think part of the uh, the problem is uh, well. Let, let's just start on the scientific uh, community side. Is 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 one of hubris. Uh, so science is not magic. Science is a process of learning about the world. Uh, it's a way of of structuring discussions among people who, who are of good faith who want to learn how the world actually works and then then draw inferences from that. Um, it's it's uh, it, it relies on people. Uh, talking to each other openly, you know, disagreeing with each other often, um, but with the disagreements tempered by data and experiment. Um, and it's it's a live thing where, I mean, that's why, I, I mean, it's always been fun for me in science. I mean, it's, it's not that you avoid getting into, you know, sort of conflicts with people over, over points like, you know, we, to, 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 you know it's, it's just part of the, how science works. People are going to have different ideas about the way the world works. Mm -hmm. The fun part is, getting into the discussion oh, yeah <laughs> i mean i mean i hope we you and i disagree on something i mean well it'll, that's how we learn from each other I, I hope um uh and then uh you know the, the, the idea isn't to criticize the person that got it wrong the, the, the idea is to use experiment to to discipline all of us every scientist has got something wrong at some point that's just unless you're a very 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 timid scientist and that never never say anything uh interesting um, so it's so I think uh, that that hubris is at the center of the problem that we've seen during the pandemic uh, in science. Uh, there's also like another uh, the sort of like you're, I mean, I'm talking to professional ethicists, so I should be careful here. But I, 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 I my view there's sort of been two different ethical norms of behavior uh, that have conflicted with each other. Like one one norm in public health and one norm in science. Hmm. Right. So in science. The ethical norm is of free discussion of ideas with almost no holds barred. I mean, I'm supposed to be allowed to think and hypothesize freely. Um, and, you know, to suppress that is essentially to suppress science. I mean, that's the, the, the basic idea of the Enlightenment, right, is that is that uh, there isn't a, a higher high, uh, authority that can decide one way or the other whether I'm committing scientific heresy because you know there's no there's there just isn't. I mean, the, 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 you know, uh, no none of us are God. Um, the uh, uh, the on the other side is this the norms in public health. So, so in public health, you 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 do kind of need some um, some unanimity of messaging to be effective, mm -hmm. right? So if I come out, uh, you know, someone from Harvard, Stanford, or Oxford comes out, writes a a a, a great uh, great declaration saying that smoking is good for you. Well, I've committed a sin. I mean, I, that is a that is a deeply wrong thing to do uh, because it's going it, to. Some people may believe this horrible wrong thing that I'm saying. Uh, I'm contra contradicting public health advice, which is based on really good science, decades and decades of evidence that smoking kills you. Um, and so there is this like ethical norm of of uh, unanimity of messaging in public health um, that actually, if you think about it, conflicts with the ethical norms of science. Do you think the different? So it's very interesting to me that trust seems to be a component of public health, public trust, right? Which is not true as much when it comes to scientists, because very few of us know scientists. We don't. We don't. I mean, I didn't know you prior to two years ago, um, and so 
trust is a is an interpersonal kind of relationship. And so the public doesn't have direct trust or reasons to trust scientists in virtue of what we know about them because we don't really know anything about them. <laughs> but public health has to operate on a certain kind of authoritarianism or a certain kind of paternalism, doesn't it? I mean, you have to get a group of people to do what you're prescribing they should do, basically on your say-so. And heterogeneity in messaging is a threat that undermines that kind of trust. Right? Yeah. I mean that's that's exactly right. And a trust is actually the the the, the central idea in both science and public health, although they work in different ways. Hmm. Uh, so, so in 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 science, when I read a paper, uh, when I, uh, I you know that's been peer reviewed or even if it hasn't been, um, I assume that the authors are working uh, in good faith. Hmm. That they're that they're not lying to me about the results they found. That if they'd found uh, contrary results, they would have told me about them. Um, I, I, I assume good faith of my uh, of my fellow scientists. Uh, when they get something wrong, I don't think they're doing it to lie, lie or because they're evil or, 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 or alternative motives. I have to assume uh, that that they're that they're making an argument in good faith, and I have to engage with the argument. Now that sounds Pollyannish because it kind of is Pollyannish, um, but that's really the that, that's the the ideal of science is this that kind of trust so when like some someone commits a fraud makes up results and publishes in a fancy place they have violated the trust that that, provi that provides the basis for science to, to actually move forward mm -hmm. and now we live in the real world people do that all the time uh people uh have motives uh, other than just purely the, the 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 acquisition of knowledge or the production or the you know the discovery of new knowledge um, and so, of course, we have to take that into account when we when we're doing doing and reading science. And for the public, it's so difficult, right? So there's because there's technical aspects of science, and you know they're not in the scientific community necessarily, and they they may not have that trust. And so I think um, there's that kind of that kind of trust sort of the base at the basis of scientific uh, any scientific work in any scientific community. A lot of what we're seeing now uh, during the pandemic is a violation of that trust. People with um, with you know financial motives, people with motives of trying to advance their careers, uh, pe people with with uh, with motives of, of just uh, you know making a big splash and headlines. Uh, I mean, it's it's it, that 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 those kinds of motives. Uh, if people come to within the scientific community itself, come to think of them as as widely prevalent, really undermine the ability of science to advance. Um, on the public health side, that trust that you identified is absolutely essential, and once it's violated. Um, it's very difficult for public health to be uh, to be effective, right? So, like if you look at Sweden, for instance, the, the main reason why they've been so effective with their public health strategy is because they have the trust of the people. Mm -hmm. uh, they they uh, how do they do that? Well, one is that they don't tell uh, noble lies, right? This idea that you, there's stuff you, uh, you can't say. Uh, if you if, if I, I, can, I can tell you that uh, there, like, I mean, I, you know, in 2020. Going into 2020, there was a massive literature that suggested that, that you know, including randomized studies, suggested that mass mandates wouldn't wouldn't be particularly effective. Randomized, good randomized studies done with the flu, um, and yet public health uh, first lied about uh, about uh, in order to first they, first they told the truth, saying, look, that the masks are not going to work. We need to reserve them for hospital settings where they might work. That that was the truth. And then when they saw the public clamoring for masks. Um, because you know why wouldn't they work it? Why would they not work in 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 um, 
outside the hospital, just the way they work inside the hospital, um, they, 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 they fibbed and lied. They said they, they just ignored all of that vast evidence suggested it wouldn't work outside of hospital settings. Um, and, uh, and, and then pushed mandates on people uh, and even said that they lied. Like uh, Tony Fauci said that he lied about the, about the, about the, you know, about the masks initially when he, in fact, he was telling the truth initially and lying later. Um, once you push these kinds of ideas of noble lies and people see through them, the public no longer trusts your advice. I mean, just reasonably, like I, I expect people in authority over me to tell me true things. And if they tell me false things, I'm not going to believe them, even if they are telling me true things. Well, this um, is very interesting to me. I, I'd be curious to hear what is your perception of where things are at in America? Now, I know that's complicated because your states are very different from one another. I think there's greater diversity in, between American states than in Canada and our provinces. But um, I mean, my feeling is that we are we are, <laughs> well, we're, we're close to Sweden in some sense, because I think there's still a great deal of public trust in, in our public health uh, agencies and officials, but not for the same reason as the, as the Swedes have been able to earn it, not because there's transparency, but because we still, uh, well, that's a question is whether or not it's an issue of fear or, or what it is. But where are you at in the in the U.S. in terms of public trust and in public health? So um, in, in addition to the the the, uh, the distrust that's come from essentially public health telling noble lies, um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the uh, there's also this aspect uh, which may be unique to the U.S. I don't think it's unique, but it's it's, it's certainly ha is prevalent in the U.S. Um, of this that that public uh, health public health professionals are almost uniformly of one political stripe on, on the left mm -hmm. uh, and the, the 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 population of course is not one political stripe it's very much divided you know red states blue states or whatnot mm -hmm. um, there's been this perception I, I think embedded by public health itself that uh, that public health professionals look down on and disdain people on the political right mm -hmm. Right. Just one good example of this is in the early days of the pandemic, uh, the the the, the uh, there was some early anti-lockdown protests. Uh, in, I think in, in April, May, May 2020, uh, and public health professionals were uniformly against them. They said, "Look, it's irresponsible to protest in public during a pandemic. Uh, you know the lockdowns are necessary. Please go home." Um, and uh, then when the George Floyd uh, uh, protests started happening. A very very large number of public health professionals signed on to them, said it's okay, there's some things that are important enough that you should uh, you should be allowed to protest, which is you know a fine a fine position to have. I'm I'm not against that, but the American public looked at this, especially the people on the right, and said, look, this doesn't make sense. You guys are public health professionals, and you're saying that your values are okay to protest over, but ours aren't. Um, when you have public health looking down on half the American public, you just can't build trust. Like you just, I know if I'm looked down on by, if I'm disdained, I'm just not going to trust the person that's 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 uh, that's treating me this way. Um, and I think uh, that that's a that is a, a big dynamic in American public health that it's lost the trust of at least half the American public on, in that way. So they just won't believe anything they say. This politicization of science has had such a detrimental uh, ethical and and social effect because 
as soon as we do that, as soon as we align science with one political stripe, as you say, um, those people will look at the other side, not as having a difference of opinion, but as being crazy, as being detached from reality. And then it's easy to dismiss them. And as soon as we do that, we have a restriction in terms of diversity of opinions. And then there's a question about whether we can have a kind of scientific um, process anymore. If any questions, there's, I've read so much lately, you know, from journalists and scientists and uh, about questions being off the table. I can't tell you how frequently that phrase has come up. And I, um, I mean, I started my career at university in the mid nineties, I guess. And either I was inattentive, I had rose colored glasses on, or there has been a shift. And I certainly don't remember that being the case. In my discipline, the first time it, it, I started to notice it was in the field of feminism. And it stopped being okay to ask certain questions and make certain claims or hold certain positions about uh, feminist ideology, uh, abortion rights. Um, then that was really the precursor, I think, to some of our entrenchments about transgenderism and things like that now. But then somewhere along the way, that became the modus operandi for all of science and all of inquiry. Can you give me your perspective on that? When did you notice a shift and or or have we always been this way in some sense? I mean, I think uh, this this idea of creating outgroups, uh, it's, I mean, that's always been part of, of how some, you know, some people have tried to gain power. Um, but the, 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 the center, like essentially the academic center, the scientific center, the public health center, creating outgroups of large classes of people who, who just their main crime is they just disagree. Um, that I think is is uh, I mean in my in my experience relatively recent. I mean maybe it's been going on for some you know a decade or two. I'm not sure, but I, and I and I personally have not experienced it before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, it has become abundantly clear to me that the, that the, this creation of outgroups is, is a, a primary way by which public health tries to hold on to power and manipulate people. All right, so. Um, uh, just to give you a couple of examples of this from the pandemic itself, um, in order to manipulate people to to take the vaccine, I, I'm vaccinated, so this is this was I, I looked at the evidence and decided it was worth it for me. Um, but uh, what, what what public health did is they they start, started pushing mandates. As soon as people started saying, "Oh, I I, I I don't know, I don't want, I'm not sure I want this. This doesn't make sense for my health. I've already had COVID and recovered. Why do I need to have this vaccine?" You know, the, completely legitimate questions. Um, from a personal health point of view, um, public health response was to say, well, we should mandate it. You take the vaccine, you lose your job. I mean, just, I mean, I heard a first time about you, Julie, based on that very brave stance you took. And it just, I mean, it touched me. Um, I, I think the the problem there is that they wanted, they, uh, they, they went from there to now uh, we've created this group, this out group of, 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 re of rebels who just won't, won't listen. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're creating, all of the problems of society that we have this pandemic of the unvaccinated we have to expel them from society mm -hmm. right um that kind of of uh sort of uh impulse to exclude people on the basis of not not obeying orders that is it's it's almost tailor-made designed to create distrust in the population uh, and resentment in the population at this point, I don't I actually don't see how public health comes back comes back from that without a, a, just an apology or it's, and maybe and change in personnel at the top. Um, 
so so there's the, the, the there's the 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 creation of of these outgroups on the base and so and so there's like this purity test it's not just that that you 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 get got the vaccine now it's like you have to get the the booster well i'm not sure i want the booster now all of a sudden unboosted are in the outgroup mm-hmm. right um every single step involves uh, a a purification in the sense of, of people who agree at the center um and more and more people being excluded outside uh, pushed outside of it uh, eventually the center is no longer the center um and i think uh, what you're just describing about uh, this 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 sort of uh, uh delegitimization of contrary argument has i mean I, it's my eyes have been open during the pandemic it's certainly i see this now all around um it, it, instead of uh instead of Say, saying okay these are good faith disagreements i disagree with you let's let's have a conversation or maybe not we just just agree to disagree um we we have this like idea that uh you know you deplatform people who who, uh, who who are not uh who are not at the center who don't who don't who don't agree because otherwise it's too dangerous i i, I do agree a second example um we talked about earlier actually is the is the great barrington declaration and uh, we we signed this great barrington declaration in october 2020 um Four days after we wrote it, the head of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, wrote an email to Tony Fauci, uh, you know, the Tony Fauci, uh, the science himself. He, uh, he, sa- he said he said that uh, that he called the three of us, me, Martin Kuldorf of Harvard, and Sinatra Group of Oxford, fringe epidemiologists. Uh, which I now have a business card. Let's see if I have, yeah, I got a business card that now says fringe epidemiology on it. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, the the uh, and then he uh, um, and then then he called for a devastating published takedown of the premises of the pandemic of the of the Great Parenting Declaration. Uh, the press then came after me. They they organized a, essentially like a a, a propaganda war, uh, accusing me of wanting to let the virus rip. When in fact the main idea of the Great Parenting Declaration is focused protection of the vulnerable, not not letting the virus rip. Um, the the um, he then. Uh, they, essentially, what were they trying to do? They were trying to delegitimize this debate, push us and the tens of thousands of doctors and scientists who signed the declaration out of the center, out of the conversation altogether. They needed and wanted to maintain an illusion of control, the, the, an illusion that there was a consensus behind their ideas when in fact there was no such consensus. Uh, it's the center of how you maintain power. You You, you, you tell the public that you are you are the center and everyone else is on the outside. Um, and I think that's really what's been going on uh, in, in the dynamic you're talking about is this, uh, is this, you know, there's the people with tremendous hubris that think they're right um, and are, are not amenable to correction. And as soon as someone from the inside tries to correct them, they, they push them to the outside. Right. Do you think we are approaching a tipping point where there are no longer, an, or there will no longer be enough core supporters of the narrative of the experts to support it? And then if so, what will the response of those experts be? Will they have to switch to the other side in order to maintain some control? Yeah, I mean, I th- well, I, 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 in Canada, I think it's it's a little different. It seems like you know, the dynamic you say is right. It, it's still, there's still some seems to be a lot more power inside the center. Um, mm. uh, but I think in a lot of other parts of the world, and certainly in the United States, I think the dynamic is shifting very rapidly, uh, such that the ability of the center to maintain uh, control over the narrative is is, is collapsing. Um, and 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 you know you can see this in the uh, just the, the recently there was a 
Uh, the FDA approved a vaccine for use among six-month-olds. Mm -hmm. um, and the uptake, uh, you know, there's a big propaganda push for it uh, uh, in, the, in the usual way that public health does propaganda. And yet only in the, in the, in the two or three, I think three or four weeks now since it was approved, it was, it's only about 2% of the American public parents have vaccinated their six-month-olds with the COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, that, is a, that's a, that is a disaster, a complete utter disaster. You have public health saying this vaccine is necessary and now the American public not listening to it, even in blue states. Um, so it, it's and it and it's, it spills over because it is a disaster. I mean, they're like I, I'm a big proponent of, of of parents vaccinating young their young kids for diseases like measles and and uh, polio. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a big decline in uptake of those vaccines as well. I mean, it spills over. Once you lose trust, you lose trust on all issues, not just on on the on, on the one you're you're lying about. Um, and I think that uh, is indicative that public health is in a very in the, at least in the United States is a very precarious place. They've lost the trust of the American people. Um, the, you asked the second question. It was really interesting. Like, what will people do that were that were that pushed these harmful policies? Mm -hmm. And I've seen uh, I've seen like really two like two different uh, distinct well three three different approaches. Uh, there are still the hardcore people who just maintain they did everything right. You know, just just mask up and the disease will go away. We can get to zero if we just try hard enough, lock down hard enough. Um, there's still some of those hard. I mean, they they remind me of. The, uh, the Japanese soldiers in 1950 found in some remote Pacific island thinking the World War II is still going on. Um, there's, there's, uh, there are people who uh, uh, insist as loudly as they can that we just didn't follow their advice strongly enough. We didn't lock down hard enough. Mm -hmm. And if only we had listened to them, then they would have been right. Then, they, then, then things would have gone, gone right. Um, uh, I find this position extremely difficult to take. I mean, the, the lockdowns caused tremendous harm to the lives of so many people um, and to insist that people, the public didn't make sacrifices at the request of public health is just false. I mean, we didn't send our kids to school. We closed our businesses. We we put up with, uh, with uh, this fear mongering and panic mongering. Uh, many people lost their jobs as you did over 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 the uh, over the vaccine mandates. Um, uh, we, we tore our societies apart trying to listen to the advice of public health. Mm -hmm. um, and to say now that oh you, we just didn't lock down hard enough is 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 an insult to the public, which tries hardest to try to to control the pandemic. Um, and then uh, you know, and then the third group, and this is the group that gives me hope, is there are a few public health professionals who are saying, look, yeah, maybe we should do some introspection. We we got things wrong. Uh, let's look at this in the in the spirit of you know, I, you know, when a when there's a a patient that dies. In a in a in a hospital setting or something, uh, the 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 physicians that are managing the patient will often have a conference called a morbidity and mortality conference afterwards, an MNM conference, where the idea is not to point fingers, but to say an honest discussion about what went wrong, and then try to learn from it so you don't make the same mistakes next time. I've seen a few public health professionals move in that direction. I think that is the hope um, that if 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 all of public health can move to that point. Um, you know, I think that that's the only way forward, really. It seems like we need that on a large scale, though, don't we? We need it not just to be happening in a particular case-by-case -case basis, but uh, countries need to be doing this. Hospitals need to be doing this. Humanity needs to uh, stop, take account, do some witnessing, witnessing 
and 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 testifying to to the harms of what has gone on and be willing to look i mean we seem to have such a desire for polarized thinking binary thinking we we see you know we feel like well if i can't be 100% sure about the pro narrative position then i guess that puts me in the the, the polar opposite camp but to move beyond this, it seems to me that we have to be much more comfortable with asking questions that we don't have immediate answers to and gray areas and realize that multiple things can be true at once. You can you can have a virus and have it be the case that masks won't help to address it. And those are views from the two camps, but it's possible to hold both of those views simultaneously, right? It, it Do you think that there is some movement that you're seeing, I mean, you mentioned some professionals who are starting to ask questions about what has happened in particular cases. Do you think there is some movement within professional and academic medicine towards embracing question asking and not being so uncomfortable about uncertainty and being freer to express oneself? Are you seeing the seeds of that at all? <laughs> Please say yes. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it, it, <laughs> I wish I could say yes, but I don't, yeah. I don't think it's yes yet. Um, I, I, there is um, the seeds of the seeds, maybe. <laughs> there's, there's some places, you know, like I think uh, the, 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 I saw the Norwegian public health authorities now mm -hmm. uh, essentially apologizing for closing schools or at least saying, admitting that they made a mistake. Um, you, you have uh, the Swedish public authorities. Uh, essentially acknowledging that they didn't protect nursing homes well enough in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, I mean, like in Scandinavia, I've seen some of this spirit of, you know, like there's this, there's this Christian idea of grace. I mean, you know, if you, if you, if you confess your sins, uh, God will be faithful and just to, to forgive your sins. Right. So first you have to confess, then you get the, then you get the grace. So you're seeing some, some of these confessions coming out in that sense. Um, uh, and then grace happening. Um, but I think uh, in, in the American public health and in again at the center, uh, we're not seeing that. I don't, I don't see any signs really of that. Uh, of, of, instead of seeing a hardening of positions, this idea of, of continuing to push out, insisting that the things were right. Um, and then uh, I've also seen um, people move uh, just again. Let's take the great venture question. They'll take a they'll, they'll say, okay, well, um, they'll take some of the positions that are closer to that. Like they'll say things like, "Well, now, uh, now that Omicron's here, we have no choice just to protect the vulnerable, uh, and let's try to live our lives." Well, that's the Great Barrington Declaration. I've heard Ashish Shah, who's the White House COVID czar now, um, say, say something very close to that. But he was a big proponent of the Great Barrington Declaration. It would would really be helpful if you were to, to acknowledge that 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 is the Great Barrington Declaration position that that that, that he actually got things quite wrong. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think that. Uh, uh, I, but I, I think that uh, at the center of this is a lot of people who had very high positions of public trust are going to have to acknowledge that they that they that they were wrong about it and that, and in some cases abuse that public trust. Mm -hmm. There's really no other way to fix this. Um, and then and then we can have this conversation about how, well again without pointing fingers then because they've already acknowledged that, that that they got things wrong. I mean it's not like it's it's not like anyone got I think everything right. Um, I mean, I, I will readily admit the things I got. I mean, I thought the vaccine wasn't going to arrive in nine months. In March of 2020, told me, someone told me they would take nine months to produce and to, to deploy a vaccine at scale. Um, I mean, I, I, I would have thought you were crazy. Um, uh, there, 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 
there are, I thought the vaccine um, would be more effective at protecting against uh, transmission than, than, it, than it turned out to be. Uh, I didn't know, but it, but it's, it's, it, I mean, it's just for, but for certain, because the, the, the trials were, 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 didn't, didn't answer those questions. Um, I, I, I thought that, uh, I, I thought, I didn't think that there would be this kind of, pol of polarization within public health itself, where they pushed out people from outside. That, that absolutely shocked me, still shocks me. Um, uh, I, mean, I look back at some of the podcasts I did early in the pandemic, and I was quite Pollyannish about public health coming together to, to do the right thing. And uh, the imposition of the vaccine mandates after the evidence had become clear that the vaccine doesn't stop transmission still shocks me. I thought that there was no way they were going to that public health would push these things. Um, so I mean, I think there's lots everyone's gotten wrong on on and, and the issue is just one of like coming together to talk talk about like what we, what we can do like in the spirit of an M and M. But you know, like the people that were abused, people that lost their jobs as a consequence of these these uh these abuses uh, that, that uh, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah there has to be some acknowledgement of wrongdoing but that requires humility and as you said much earlier we have the tendency or in science anyway have quite a tendency toward hubris right now which is really the opposite of humility and it's um i think what we know from moral psychology is it's not very likely for people to have an about face in terms of moving from one vice to a virtue that quickly you know usually it takes a lot Aristotle said you've got to kind of bend a stick you have to overcorrect it right it takes a long time and a lot of practice so if we're going to see that sort of shift you would think it would have to come from some people who have been trying to be humble all along or it will take a long period of time or there will be a straw that does break the camel's back such that you can't hold on to your hubris anymore because it just becomes ridiculous to, to observe it. I wanted to ask you about, um, so I believe in April, there was this California um, bill that was proposing to discipline physicians for promoting or spreading false information about COVID-19. And you said something like, this could turn doctors into agents of state public health rather than advocates for their own patients. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so the bill is, it's called AB 2098. It's a bill proposed by um, uh, uh, some, some California legislators, uh, which would empower the uh, the, uh, the 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 state's medical um, regulatory agents uh, regu it's it's actually it's 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 the it's it's these like uh, credentialing agencies mm -hmm. uh, to discipline physicians that 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 commit thought crimes in, in a sense right uh, they, they, if they if they come out and say look uh, uh, you know something against what the what the center thinks is true um, what the, what the regulatory bodies think is true then the the, the doctors could lose their licenses. Now, what I've seen during the pandemic is you don't even need a law like this. We already see this kind of thing happening. Um, you, you, and I, I know I know in Canada that's happening for certain. Like a lot of these 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 uh, these these uh, medical regulatory bodies have disciplined doctors who have asked questions about uh, about the public health response or pushed back or given patients advice about uh, whether the vaccine is good for them or not. Um, and I think also a culture of discipline and a culture of silence that does its own kind of disciplining, even without it being taken to the to the to the college, for example. But um, yeah, and well, I, I just who've lost their licenses over this. Yeah, and I, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's exactly what, what's happened is that you, you don't have to do the disciplining. You just have to make examples of a few people. Um, 
uh, you know, and then and that's that's enough. Um, you, so I mean, just to give you an example of this. Uh, doctors are afraid to treat patients early with for COVID, mm-hmm. even though there are uh, approved treatments available. Things like and this is uh, like in, in 2021, doctors were afraid to give patients um, monoclonal antibodies, which were an approved treatment. Um, they were they were afraid to give people even even experimental treatments, which normally you would give for a new disease for which there isn't a good early treatment. Um, doctors were afraid to give. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's remarkable. They were, why were they afraid to give it? Because they 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 would lose their license over it. Um, th- that essentially meant that the doctors no longer had this uh, obligation to primarily to their patients to manage them and care for them and give them the best best care that that they, that they could. Instead, they had this obligation to the to, to public health to follow public health dictates. Um, uh, the the physician patient relationship relies deeply on this trust that do, the doctor that patients have that the doctors are looking out for their own best interests. There aren't other interests that that that, that, that physicians are thinking about while they manage the patient. Um, you know, and I think um, this kind of overly zealous policing of decision of, no, of standard normal decision making. I'm not talking about malpractice, of course that should be policed, um, but standard normal decision making by physicians caring for their patients in difficult circumstances, um, that's a disaster for medicine. Uh, and I think uh, that is something medicine is gonna need to deal with. It, normally, usually uh, in the past, what's happened is physician groups, phys- groups like the American Medical Association have stood up for doctors mm-hmm. and the right for the doctors to practice medicine. Um, instead, what we have is, the physician groups like the AMA are joining hands in the suppression of 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 like basically honest medical practice. Um, you know, it's it, it it's it's absolutely stunning to watch uh, this happen. And a lot of my, a lot of physicians have written to me, um, you know, complaining about this, but they they they're afraid to speak up because they you know they don't want to lose their license. Mm-hmm. A coordinated kind of silencing. Yeah, something we. Well, in bioethics, I mean, there is nothing discussed as much as informed consent, possibly, and respect for patients, which are hand in hand, I think. I, I mean, I think if you did a, a word search in, in, a, in a database, you'd get informed consent more than just about anything. And yet, over the last two years, it's really been absent in public discourse, in journalism, in public health messaging. Um and one of the things that's interesting about it to me is that informed consent, it's a sort of complicated issue because there's the consent capacity side of it, but then there's the informational side of it, which requires a culture of support, doesn't it? For a patient to be able to get accurate information, there's a question about where does that information come from? His or her doctor certainly one of the sources, maybe arguably the best source. But if that physician is caught up in a in a in a tightly woven net of conflicts of interest and is being strangled by his or her uh professional body but also profession more generally um to the degree that information is suppressed and the ability to support free decision making is suppressed informed consent really becomes a, a, a vacuous notion doesn't it as i think it has been over the last two years yeah i mean i think um you know, informed consent. You're absolutely right. I mean, what you're what you're describing is a as 
is uh, in, the, the informed consent relies on the patient trusting that the physician is providing and, and public health is providing trustworthy information. And that collapse of trust means informed consent is, is very difficult, if, if, if impossible. Um, the, other flip, the other flip side of this is that uh, even if you are well-informed, even if, even if a physician informs you perfectly without any bias about the facts, about the, the the treatment that they that they're suggesting for you, um, and you you know you 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 listened and and, you, and then then you decide I I don't want it. There's there's informed and there's consent. That consent means that the patient has the right to say no, even if they're informed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, implicit within this idea of informed consent is this freedom of the patient to make a choice, mm-hmm. regardless of what the physician or the public health authorities or whoever wants. Um, uh, that that's been entirely violated. You, you can't have informed consent where the endpoint is always going to be yes. The patient's going to take this no matter what. I mean, then there's no there's no free will there. There's the, the sort of the center of why informed consent matters. Yeah, that's very interesting because I think we might have the impression, which is as you describe, that well, as long as the doctor uh, lays out all of the science for you, and a rational person would see clearly the science and therefore agree with what all the scientists are telling you to do, then consent is an automatic kind of trigger, right? Once once that happens. But the freedom that you mentioned, the free thinking, uh, informed consent is supposed to respect a kind of freedom to choose different sorts of lives. And just one element of that is how risk averse we are, for example. Some people are very risk averse. Some people are very risk friendly. And, and so that affects, you know, you hear the two people can hear the same kind of information. And one person says, oh, that sounds a little pushing me beyond my comfort zone. No, thank you. And the other person says, yeah, that's that's fine. Sure. Um, and so we, we, fail, we, we fail to realize, I think, that um, paternalism and medicine, which we worked hard to move away from for a long time, but is now morphing into a kind of state authoritarianism, is reducing um, a plurality of, of lives, right? We're saying that no one, when, when we offer you informed consent, we are envisioning an ideal consenter. And that ideal consenter is identical with every other ideal consenter, right? Yeah, so, I mean, I feel like that. Right? It's it's uh, it's it's um, been kind of shocking. I mean, okay, so we should we should distinguish two th- kinds of treatments. Like, so let's imagine a treatment um, that all that only has private benefits potentially or you know, private harms, mm-hmm. right? So uh, an experimental drug to to treat COVID in the early or, you know, for early treatment, right? Um, well, I don't know for certain if it works, but and, and I, 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 I you know if the physician tells me here's what we know, here's what we don't know. Um, here's the condition you're in. It's here's what's like. It, it, the, the data tell me are likely to what your your clinical path is, uh, and you say I want to try it. Um, why shouldn't doctors and patients be allowed to have that? I mean, that seems like it's it's a, 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 a an entirely a legitimate thing, and yet doctors were told that if they have that conversation with patients, they lose their license. Um, and on the on on the, on the other work. side, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, on the other side, there's there's also there's also these um, there there are like let's take the vaccines like a, like like a traditional vaccine. There you have the choice of the patient affecting not just the patient but potentially other people beyond the patient, um, right? So if if a large number of, of people decide not to to uh, to vaccinate their children for measles, measles will have, there'll be measles outbreaks. 
and some patients will die as a consequence. Some kids will die as a consequence. So that decision will have some effects on other people that aren't part aren't party to the decision. There you have, um, so you have a tension here between informed consent and the sort of the duty of the public mm-hmm. that, that that's sort of uh, hard to manage. Um, if it's it, and and um and now of course in the in the context of the COVID vaccine that isn't actually the 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 case because the vaccine does not stop disease transmission, so the public aspect of this vaccine is not anywhere nearly as important as the public aspect of the MMR vaccine, for instance. Um, so really, the, the 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 COVID vaccine is more like the experimental treatment as opposed to the to the, the, the MMR vaccine where, where you do have a certain public aspect. But, in, let's, but even in the context of a vaccine that has this public benefit that's well established, um, I, I think that the idea that of coercion, um, you know, I've informed you about this, you say no, and I coerce you to take it anyways, that itself is, prob- is, 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 is actually counterproductive, right? So like for instance, uh, Swedish public health did not mandate the vaccine ever. Um, and th- I think they, they they required a vaccine passport for a couple of months and then apologized later for it. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the consequence has been uh, higher uptake than places that have mandated the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, public trust goes a long way when you uh when uh, in resolving this tension between you know sort of informed consent and co- and coercion and in service of of uh of, of you know pu- public health um it's very interesting to me if the i mean is the point you make which is that the vaccines are showing themselves not to reduce transmission which in my mind makes them no longer a public health issue at all it's just a therapeutic issue for individual patients and so yeah. we should see that moving out of the um, moving out of the context of public health quite possibly right let me ask you about what do you you can put on your um, future looking hat for a minute where do you think we will what kind of a fall do you think we will have and where do you think we will be with all of this in a year from now I know that's a big, <laughs> a lot of hypothetical, counterfactual <laughs> elements there. You're setting me up to be uh, to, to, for a year from now saying, well, I was wrong about this. Yeah, and I yeah. <laughs> we'll add to the things that you can be <laughs> humble about. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, so I think uh, this disease is here to stay. The COVID is here to stay. It's not eradicable. Uh, it, you, it's in it, animals spread it, get it and spread it. Um, it's, uh, we have no technology to actually stop the spread of it. Uh, and uh, so it is a disease that is effectively permanent in human societies um, from here on forward. Actually, for, for it's from March 2020 on forward, probably probably December 2020 2019 on forward. Um, uh, so we just have to come to terms with that. That's just a fact. Um, so there, in the fall, there's likely to be waves. And it, it, this is very. There's a very clear seasonal pattern to this. In late fall, winter seems to be the season for COVID. Right now, you're seeing Australia and New Zealand having massive waves during their winter. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have we're going to have waves continuously for the rest of time. Um, uh, that the uh, uh, the good news is that there's pretty widespread population immunity in many countries. Um, in the United States. 75% or more children have had the disease and recovered from it. Uh, I think that's likely true for adults, although the serious surveys are not quite in that range. Um, probably a lot, probably more. 
Um, so you have uh, a lot of people who've had the disease and recovered from it. Um, when they get it again, they will get, they'll tend to get milder disease, less likely to produce hospitalizations, less, less likely to produce deaths. And so you'll see this decoupling between the cases and the deaths. Whereas once they were very closely coupled with each other, uh, you saw a rise in cases, and then two weeks later, you saw hospitalizations and deaths as a consequence. So it's more see recoverable. Is that what you mean? Yeah. If you get COVID, you're more likely to recover. Yeah, you're more. It's, it'll be more like um, uh, something that 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 you just you get. You're, it makes you sick for a little while, and then you're you're, you're better. Um, for most, the vast, vast, vast part of the population. Uh, the question to me is, what uh, what kind of reaction will public health have and societies have to the fact of cases rising? And there I'm still seeing this polarization, right? So you see in, in blue states, uh, in San Diego, they're, they're calling for the return of mass mandates and then kids that refuse mass, they have to do Zoom school. Mm -hmm. um, you're seeing uh, in some places, a, a, a uh, like LA County in, in California, a, a demand for the return to, uh, to completely ineffective indoor mask mandates. They're still reinforcing um, vaccine mandates in many places in the United States, uh, you know, for instance, or in many, for many groups in the United States, including the military and for uh, uh, people working in, in hospitals and elsewhere. Um, again, makes no sense because you have, you have a, a vaccine that doesn't stop transmission. You're not protecting patients by exposing them to only vaccinated people. Uh, in fact, a lot of unvaccinated people have had the disease and recovered. They have pretty good immunity, unlikely to spread the disease, at least as unlikely to spread the disease as a vaccinated person that, that hasn't had the disease before. Um, so I think we're going to see a, a, a real test in the fall over um, how, uh, whether people really are intellectually flexible enough to no longer demand useless uh, and harmful interventions in the face of the fact that we have a disease that's going to stay here forever. Um, if we adopt these kinds of procedures now, these kinds of mandates now, uh, there's no logic in ever getting rid of them. Mm -hmm. The disease will always be here like this. There's no, this will and be this just- approach to other diseases, the same approach yeah. we would just paste on to, to other viruses that come along possibly. Yeah, and so like, are we gonna, are, are we have to, so we have a choice, right? As, as societies, are we, we, are we going to structure our societies so that they're focused on the prevention of a, a very small number of infectious diseases? Or are we gonna have a society that understands that infectious diseases are something that humanity has lived with for, for the entire history of humanity? Um, and uh, we, have to, we, have to, we have other goals that we also have to consider that are quite important for human life, human flourishing, human, 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 human functioning. Um, and uh, the, a lot of the, those decisions, I think, are going to be made, at least in the United States, at the, at the ballot box. A lot of the, the, the political, mm. um, the, the, they'll, they'll, there's, they, won't, they won't necessarily like say it explicitly at, that this is what they're arguing over, but that is, like a lot of the political fights that are happening in the United States anyways, and actually in Canada and, and elsewhere, center around that question. How do we want to structure our societies? Do we want to structure societies so that um, we can allow a plural set of goals for to, to thrive in a liberal liberal democracy? Or do we want to structure society so that a small priestly class manages the society to prevent us from being at risk from a small number of infectious diseases? Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting question. And whether or not we, we believe that human health should be state managed at all. 
whether or not that is part of the portfolio of, as you say, a, a free liberal democracy. I was going to ask you as our last question, I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about today is sort of a sit back and wait approach. It's There's a passivity to it, right? This, well, we'll have to see how public health officials respond. But do you think there is anything that individual people can do? I mean, you mentioned the political dimension. I mean, we here in Canada, we're probably going to have a federal election before too long. We're currently uh, electing a new leader of the federal conservative party. Um, and then in America, you know, state to state, you'll be, you will have elections ongoing. But is there anything else that individuals can do to, to sort of grow the sphere of personal liberty and prevent this state incursion that seems from the perspective of the state to be inevitable? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, for, for uh, people who aren't scientists or in public health, um, the, that, that sort of political um, uh, engagement is going to be very, very important. Um, I, I mean, I think uh, making sure that your voice is heard Votes still do matter. Um, it's been interesting to me to see so many of the politicians around the world who were very strongly in favor of lockdowns sort of face mm -hmm. political, their political comeuppance one after the other. Almost always not because explicitly, it's not explicitly the lockdown is the reason, or it's it's always some other reason, but yet it, it's, I mean, it's just hard to, like, hard to imagine. So I mean, like my, the, 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 my, my favorite example is Andrew Cuomo in the New York governor who, made this enormous um, error of sending COVID-infected patients into nursing homes, spreading the disease and killing, I mean, I don't know how many New Yorkers uh, in the early days of the pandemic. Um, well, he, he stepped down, uh, it resigned as governor over a, essentially a, a, like a sex scandal. Um, but I mean, that sex scandal, I think sublimated really the anger of New Yorkers around that, the, 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 the bigger, more important failure, which was mm. the costing the lives of so many older of, of their parent of their parents and grandparents um uh they're, they're, you, you see this in australia uh the, there's a uh i think um uh North, in the northern territory that michael gunner was a prime minister there uh, the, the chief minister there steps down for personal reasons he was he instituted covid effectively covid concentration camps like places to bring quarantine camps they called them um without due process to throw people in for two weeks uh if they if they you know if they if they had the crime of having tested positive for covid um uh you know you 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 have uh you have politicians around the world starting to see now you have some politicians that have survived this like uh macron uh in france um but at the same time you know and angela merkel's gone he was a big lockdowner Boris Johnson steps down. Um, in in uh, in Canada, you have. Uh, I mean, I think uh, Jason Kenney's under a lot of pressure. Um, you know, you you're starting to see a lot of a lot of these movements against the the politicians that that uh, that said yes to lockdowns. Well, at the same time, you're seeing politicians that pushed back against lockdowns starting to to rise. Like uh, the primary example being um, uh, uh, Florida's Ron DeSantis, who famously uh, opened the state in, in um, you know, in summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I, I think the pol political ramifications are enormous. And I think uh, for people, regular people who are quite upset at what, what public health has done, I think um, demanding political leader, leaders uh, be scientifically literate and then brave enough to stand up to uh, essentially to tyranny pushed by public health is going to be quite the, the way forward. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say to me that, well, I couldn't ever do, I couldn't ever 
question or challenge because I'm too afraid. And I often say to them, well, I'm afraid too, but I'm more afraid of what might happen if we don't. And I wonder if that fear is starting to grow more in more people, um, that we're starting to see tectonic shifts in, in, um, in our sort of social and political landscape that has a lot of people worried that is much broader than just, just this COVID issue. But I, I just can't thank you enough for sharing. You're such a deep thinker across so many different um, disciplines. And I think that so you're a true polymath and that's what we need now. We've Our, our focus on subject matter experts has um, bred that kind of breadth out of um, academia. And I think that's really caused a caused us a disservice. And so I just thank you so much for being diligent and resilient and charitable with your time. Thank you so much. Julie, it was a real pleasure to, and an honor to talk, be able to talk with you. I've admired you from afar for a long time. It's just wonderful to be able to meet you and talk with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you enjoyed watching this video, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the democracyfund.ca slash donate.